Let's go ahead and read our text. Uh, Those of you that are here can stand if you'd like for the reading of God's Word. I will be reading our our passage from verse 1 of chapter 4 through verse 11 again to you. And today, hopefully, we'll be able to finish the temptation of Christ, which is actually his victory. So here is what Matthew communicates with us. He says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that not only did you send your son, but that according to your plan, your son was victorious, that he prevailed. He succeeded where Adam failed. And Lord, now we have a representative who is worthy to redeem us, to be a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we thank you. But also, Lord, as we talk about today, we also have a representative who can come to our aid uh, when we are tempted so that we can walk before you in a way that is worthy, Lord, that you can preserve us from sin. So Lord, teach us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All right, so as you saw in the reading, uh, Jesus is tempted uh, by the devil in three categories. And though Jesus is tempted in three different categories, the intent is the same. Uh, The intent is to get Jesus to disobey his father, to act independently uh, of him. Uh, But Jesus is there to be tested by the devil. But it is the Father's intent to prove Jesus uh, as loyal, as faithful uh, to God. Uh, Also, something that's worth pointing out is that if you've studied Luke's account of the gospel, uh, of of this rather, you'll notice that Luke gives the temptations in a different order. Uh, I would tell people, don't let that bother you, uh, because we have different authors that uh, see things differently. Uh, All kinds of different things affect that. But Luke, as a historian, is worried about uh, probably uh, the the content more than he is the chronology. And Matthew is uh, worried about other things. So uh, what we're we're concerned about most is the content. What actually happened? And both of them communicate the same thing in that regard. So there's no conflict between the two accounts. But let's look again at verse 3. We, we taught on verse, uh, chapter, one, or chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 last week as an introduction to the whole uh, issue of the temptation, why it's there, 
uh, what Jesus was to do. But let's get into the, the text itself, the, the account of it all. It says, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. Now during this period of testing, uh, Jesus's enemy and ours is called by three titles. He's the devil, he's the tempter, and he is called Satan. Now Matthew, as the author, he's actually the one that refers to the devil as the devil in verse 1, 5, verse 8, and verse 11. He's also the one that calls him the tempter here in verse 3. But Jesus is the one who calls him Satan in verse 10. Now, that he is referred to as the tester uh, is fairly benign. It's rather harmless. But when we attach to that title both Satan and the devil, uh, we have something altogether different. Uh, Devil means slanderer, and Satan means adversary. So our adversary, the devil, as Peter calls him, tempts us to sin. And then the moment he succeeds, he begins to slander, to ridicule, to condemn us. He actually condemns us for the sin that he tempted us to commit. He entices us, and then as soon as we bite, he sets the hook. Um, He baits us, and then he traps us, only to destroy us, as Peter tells us. And we'll look at what Peter says in closing. And also, Being the most cunning of all of God's creatures, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we know him to be the master of deception. Uh, He's a perfect liar, and therefore, for us, he's no one to toy with. Uh, The truth is, on our own, we are no match for the devil. But it is to this person that the Holy Spirit has brought Jesus for testing. If Jesus is truly to be tested and prove that he's the second Adam, as Paul calls him, if he's to be the savior of the world, it it is to Satan that he must go. He must be confronted by the one who orchestrated the fall of the first Adam. Jesus must succeed where Adam failed. And so Jesus is there in the wilderness, and after 40 days of fasting, we know that he is hungry. Of course, he is weak, he's vulnerable. And then Satan confronts him. Now, this is a part of his cunning. Uh, Satan is no dummy. Uh, He didn't go to Jesus the first day in the wilderness, in the desert, when Jesus was at his best. He came to Jesus when when he was at his weakest moment. He doesn't play fair, just as he didn't with Adam. He came to both of them uh, at vulnerable places. He's a cunning opportunist. I think that that is a lesson for us to learn. Uh, Satan waits patiently, uh, intently. He's watching us as a lion would stalk his prey, uh, especially at night where he's undetected, when we're most vulnerable, unsuspecting, weak or worse. He knows what he's doing. Notice also in the account here that Matthew gives his attention to Jesus' human nature rather than his deity, And then Satan is actually going to focus on Jesus' deity rather than his humanity. But Matthew focuses on the humanity. Um, Notice that Jesus is not out there, according to Matthew's description, in the the strength of his divine power. Uh, Verse 1 says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. We have to understand that God is not led by anyone. He's the leader. But in our text, as the man, Jesus submits himself to the Holy Spirit. 
Also, Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights. Well, God cannot fast because he does not have a body to undergo fasting with. Jesus was hungry. God doesn't get hungry because God has need of nothing. And then at the end, as as we saw, the angels came and ministered to him. God doesn't need angels to come to his aid because he needs aid for nothing. Now, it's true that Jesus is both God and man, but as we discussed at the end of Matthew 3, Jesus did not employ his divine attributes when he was here on earth, but he put himself in complete dependence upon the Father. Why is this important? Well, because when Jesus was tempted, he was being tempted as a man, weak, frail, and dependent on his Father. He was there being tempted just as we would be tempted. He's not being tempted as God. He's being tempted as man. And as he was dependent upon the Father in temptation, we should be dependent upon him if we are going to have success. I think we have to get our grips on this, that Jesus wasn't there in the wilderness to be tested as Superman and give Satan a beating, at least not this time around. He was there to suffer for our sake, not only to identify with us of those who are tempted, but to succeed for us, to to succeed for us. And then also, as we'll look at here, he was there to be qualified as our helper. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus' temptation. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So during his stay on earth, Jesus sympathized with our human weakness, especially when he was being tempted. Now, of course, he couldn't identify with our moral weakness, but he could with our human frailty. He's enduring hunger, he's weak, he's vulnerable. And in his lifetime, according to Hebrews, he was confronted with the same kind of temptations that we're faced with, but unlike us, he never suffered failure. He never once sinned, not in his words, not in his thoughts, not in his deeds, but to what end? So he could shame us and show us how easy it is to win in temptation? That wasn't the point. He was tempted and succeeded for our sake for a number of reasons. The author of Hebrews Hebrews goes on. He says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So first, the Father made Jesus to be like us, that's taking on human flesh, and then subjecting him to the troubles and weaknesses of humanity so that in his high priestly office, in his ministry, he could identify with us. He could be merciful. He he could have compassion on us, especially in the context of sacrifice. And as the, the author says here, it's by his sacrifice that he propitiated, that is, he satisfied the Father's justice against our sin, and as a result, he, he, he obtained forgiveness for us. But there's more to that. The author says, for in that he himself also suffered, or has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Because he suffered in temptation successfully, he alone can come to our help, our, our aid, rather. And the example that he leaves is that he depended on his father 
for his moral strength, his spiritual success, and now he helps us depend on him for success. So his success here secures his position as the last Adam. It made him a worthy sacrifice for the sins of humanity, and it qualified him to be our helper when we're tempted. Let's go back to our text and watch our champion under temptation. It says, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So he begins by calling Jesus the son of God. If you are the son of God, it's an interesting statement. Apparently Satan was present at Jesus's baptism. He witnessed the Holy Spirit come down upon him and reside upon him. And Satan was there to hear the father's testimony that Jesus was indeed his son. And so here Satan makes reference to what the father said about Jesus. Now, as I said, Matthew focused on the human nature of God, of Jesus. Satan focuses on his divine nature. He makes, uh, <clears throat> he says, uh, son of God. Now, to be son of God is to be of the same essence as God. It's a reference to his deity. Later, Jesus will be called son of man, and that's a reference to his humanity, his relationship to man. But here, Satan refers to his divine nature, his power. He's taunting Jesus. Satan is tempting Jesus to utilize his divine power to satisfy his human desires, to relieve him of his hunger, his suffering, to overcome weakness. Satan is tempting Jesus to do something that his father has forbidden. Jesus was there in the desert to depend on his father, not to exert his own power. Now, if Satan wasn't tempting Jesus to do something forbidden by his father, there would be no temptation here. But by his father's command... Jesus is there in the desert. He's there to fast. He's there to be hungry. He's actually there to be vulnerable. He's there to be weak by his Father's will. And Jesus is not to rescue himself by his own power, not under any circumstances, especially not under temptation by the devil. Whatever he did, he was to obey his Father's command. Now, it's important at this point to point out the little word if in the statement if you are the son of God. It's not meant to cast doubt on Jesus's relationship to the father. Um, In the original language, the little verb are in the statement, if you are the son of God, is written in the indicative mode, which assumes the truthfulness of the statement. The if is a fulfilled condition. Uh, So when we read Satan's words, we should understand him saying this, since you are the son of God, or being the Son of God, seeing that you are the Son of God. Satan is not doubting Jesus' sonship to the Father. What he's doing is he's establishing a challenge in regard to Jesus' faithfulness to the Father. That's what's being tested here. He's saying, Jesus, use your power. It's only fair. Look at how hungry you are. 40 days without food? You could die out here. And then what good would you be? You can imagine What kind of taunting is going on? You know, no one would condemn you for that. Save yourself and prove to everyone that you are the son of God. It seems like a fairly harmless suggestion. It's a reasonable request, I would think, after 40 days of not eating, for Jesus to satisfy his real needs when it was within his power to do so. Jesus, just feed yourself. Who's going to judge you for that? It was against the Father's will. The Father sent him to be tested while in a state of human weakness. He was there to suffer in obedience for our sake. 
In fact, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. And what a contrast to Adam. When we look at Adam's circumstances in the garden, he never suffered. He had never suffered before. He had never fasted. He had never wanted. He lived in a perfect environment, and yet he failed. He had it all, but he disobeyed. Jesus was in the worst environment. He was weak. He was vulnerable. It's very different. Adam had the advantage. And here, Satan is hoping to have the same success with with Jesus in the desert as he had with Adam in the garden. And in his arrogance, he was confident, especially under the circumstances. And why not be confident? He defeated Adam when Adam was strong. Certainly, he could defeat Jesus when he was weak. But Jesus, as we learn through the Gospels, though he was frail in body, he was strong in the word and in his dependence on the Father. So he responds, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus actually quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Uh, In fact, as we go through the temptations, uh, every time Jesus quotes the scriptures, it's out of Deuteronomy. Out of Deuteronomy. It's a good example for us. You know, rather than having a conversation with Satan, as many do, uh, we should do what the Lord does. We should just counter his every move with the truth of Scripture. The Scripture is what prescribes our course of action. And by the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit, it's, it's him that will keep us on the course as we yield to his guidance. Now, the phrase, it is written, uh, I think is extremely important because not just that he's appealing to the Old Testament, but he, he, he makes the statement in the perfect tense in the original. It, it means that what was written in God's word in the past still stands. Its truth, its authority remains the same. Jesus is saying what was written back then is still in force today. He's saying time has not depleted its authority or usefulness And the changing tides of culture and human opinion have not diminished its relevance, even though Deuteronomy was written some 1,400 years earlier. The word of the Lord remains forever. Jesus says it's unbroken, it's unfettered, it's unlimited. So what is it then from Deuteronomy that is true and Jesus is saying possesses lasting divine authority? He says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying that man's survival does not really, does not actually depend on his physical food. And you see, nothing demonstrates that like Israel's experience in the desert for 40 years, which is actually the context that Jesus is referring to in Deuteronomy chapter 8. You see, there's no way for either the Arabian or the Sinai Desert to provide for all of those people, for hundreds of thousands of them. There's not enough rain out there, for one. Uh, No part of that region gets more than six inches of precipitation a year, and some of it gets less than an inch. And Israel went through some of those parts. There's not enough edible vegetation there for all those people. There's no crops to harvest. There's actually uh, almost no food to forage. There's just no chance for them to survive in those numbers in the wilderness. Not to mention they were slaves in Egypt who had no desert survival skills. So being in the desert, it lacks everything needed to sustain that many people, even for a day, 
certainly not for 40 years, but we know that the Lord sustained them, as he said he would, in his word. He fed them with manna, which came from heaven. He gave them water from the rock. That doesn't happen every day. Quail until it came out of their nostrils. A cloud by day, a fire by night. Their feet never hurt. Their clothing never wore out. We could say that in some regard, for their sake, he suspended the second law of thermodynamics. I wish that my kids' shoes would never wear out. So they really did. They lived by not by bread, but by every word that came from the mouth of God. And if God can sustain hundreds of thousands of people in that desert, he can certainly sustain his son in the desert near the Jordan Basin. When we look at the history of Israel there, they were taken into the wilderness for 40 years, and God says, I did that to you to put you in a position where you would hunger, where you would suffer, where you would be vulnerable. And he says, I did that so that I could teach you to trust me, so I could teach you to obey me in spite of your circumstances. He says, I wanted you to know something about me, and I wanted you to know something about yourselves. I want you to know that I am trustworthy at all times, even in your worst circumstances. And I want you to know something about yourself. Are you going to trust me in all circumstances? Now, even though they failed, God proved himself faithful. Even though they rebelled and disobeyed, he fed them, he led them, he protected them, even though they disobeyed him. So the truth is God provided for them according to his word, the word of his promise. So it was his word that actually sustained them. Now, sadly, because that first generation in the desert failed to trust and obey him, they were not permitted to enter into the Holy Land to enjoy all of the benefits there, except for Caleb and Joshua, who did trust the Lord and, ho- and obeyed him. All were sustained by the word of the Lord, but only the obedient enjoyed the blessing. I think that should also be considered in the context of temptation. God promises to sustain. He will. But some are not going to enjoy the blessing if they don't depend upon him. So Jesus, in the story here, he did not need to make bread from the stones. The point is he needed to obey his father who would sustain him by his word, by his every word. Jesus needed to trust that his father knew what he was doing no matter what happened. Now quickly, as a bit of a warning, Jesus' example here does not teach us to quote the scriptures so that our desire for sin will magically disappear. And that by doing so, we'll be free from temptation. That's, that's using the scriptures uh, superstitiously. There's no magic words here. Uh, it's not some kind of incantation to ward off the devil. After Jesus quoted the scriptures, he didn't stop being hungry. He didn't stop desiring food. And the devil was still on his back. And he would stay on him until his death. You see, Jesus was, he was quoting scripture to inform Satan and his own body, that obedience to God's word is more important than his necessary food, and that he would not be complying with Satan's wicked suggestion because it contradicted his father's will. Jesus trusted his dad, and he was not going to stray from his will, even if it hurt him, and it most certainly would hurt him. When we fall into temptation, the scriptures would teach us that that's time to humble ourselves and then 
put our trust in Christ no matter what. He has succeeded, and we should ride on his success. Let's move on. It says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, where the pinnacle of the temple was exactly, uh, we have no idea. But my hunch is that it was at the point of the greatest visibility to those who were serving in the temple and to those who were worshiping there. And he said to him, again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now the whole point of this, of bringing Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, in view of all the worshipers and those who were serving, was for Jesus to make a spectacle of himself so that he might gain his position among his people, albeit Satan's way and not the Father's way. You see, Satan could have taken Jesus to any number of heights in the desert where he could throw himself off and do that, but he didn't. He took him all the way to Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of Judaism, and then into the temple, which is the worship center. It's where everything in Israel converges. He took him there to be noticed. And once again, Satan says, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then what is very interesting, Satan decides that he too is going to appeal to the authority of scripture to make his suggestion to Jesus appear legitimate. And so he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 about the angels protecting those who trust in the Lord. Now, you need to consider this. For Jesus, the temptation is real. Jesus is the Son of God. He's Israel's Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the King of Israel. He's the great high priest. And according to the Old Testament, according to Jewish history, all of Israel is waiting for him to arrive. And according to their traditions, Messiah would make a grand entrance, a grand appearance in the temple. So what could be more grand than Jesus flying down upon the worshipers in the temple and landing without a scratch. I mean, you want to talk about a religious experience, that would blow their minds. And if he did that, the word then would get out that the Messiah has not only come, but he's miraculously and gloriously appeared in the temple of God, just like the prophet Malachi said. At least that would be their spin on what Malachi said. But there's some problems with all of this. Jesus mentions it immediately. He says, To him, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, saying this is temptation. We'll come back to the minute, to that in a minute. There's some other problems too. The first thing was, is that Satan's quotation of scripture was a misuse and it was a misapplication of God's word. Psalm 91 does not teach us to presumptuously put ourselves in harm's way and then expect God to protect us by uh, a misapplication of his promise. Now, sadly, this is actually the, pro- the, the practice, rather, of many individual Christians, uh, many groups, and, and many false teachers. This is what they do. They take a passage of Scripture without any regard to the context or to whom it actually applies. They claim it for themselves, and then they trust God to bless it. And a Pentecostal friend of mine would often claim Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15, which says that, you know, no plague, no pestilence will touch you in your dwelling. 
And so my friend would claim this for himself, and he believed that he would never get sick and that no pestilence would ever affect him. But it's interesting. The context of the passage is God's conditional promise to ethnic Israel in regard to their prosperity in the land of Israel. And therefore, it only applied to Israel at that time and was conditioned on their obedience. So it can't even apply to anyone today. And so, of course, my friend got sick like everyone else. And for many, many years, uh, I fished with him in the mountains of Wyoming. And he used just as much bug spray as I did to keep the mosquitoes off. The scriptures are not there for us to apply willy-nilly like Satan did, and then expect God to honor it. You know, the, the, the truth is, every passage of Scripture has a context. It has a singular interpretation with the potential for multiple appropriate applications, all of which is controlled by the Scriptures, not by the student of Scripture. So the problem immediately, which I've listed here secondarily, strange enough, was Satan's use of Scripture, Jesus says that to do what Satan suggested in according with Psalm 91 would be to test God. What it is, is by leaping off the pinnacle, it would be a way of trying to force God's hand where he had promised no protection. It would be foolish presumption. And so really, it would be to disobey God's word, which condemns the practice of presuming upon him, of testing him. So Jesus, in rebuttal, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, you shall not tempt, that is, you shall not test the Lord your God. So Psalm 91 promises God's protection to those who are doing the work of the Lord, but the work of the Lord has nothing to do with throwing ourselves off of a building. Uh, We've seen this also with um, the ending of Mark's gospel with uh, the snake handlers. They use that to justify picking up snakes and taunting them to bite them and depending on God to protect them. But that is testing God. There's one other problem, the third one. Doing things Satan's way as a way to introduce Jesus to the people, that is not what the Father wanted him to. That's not the way the Father wanted him to do it. It would not be humble. It wouldn't be meek or lowly. This would be just pure showing off. It would be completely inconsistent with how the Father has brought Jesus into the world and how prophecy says that Jesus would live in the world. He was born into poverty. He was delivered in a barn. He was homeless. And then he was on the run. He was raised in Nazareth of all places. And then once his ministry began, he remained homeless throughout. He was at odds with most of Israel's population. He was at odds with every one of the leadership except for a very small number. And he died a criminal, all according to God's plan. Very different than what Satan was wanting him to do. It's not in line with the Father's will. In fact, a miracle like this, an entrance of this nature, would actually win Israel for the wrong reasons. And then it would probably uh, deter Jesus from the cross, which is his primary purpose for coming to the earth. So Jesus, of course, says no. So Satan moves on. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now it's interesting, the first temptation and and the second, I think, were super practical and applicable to us. And, And there's There's application here, but this one in particular is not so practical 
as much as it is eschatological, referring to the end times. Not only is is Satan rather trying to keep Jesus from the cross, he's trying to avoid a violent conflict with Jesus. You know, the whole head-crushing thing promised in Genesis 3.15 is something that Satan wants to steer around. The Father said he promised that the coming one, the Messiah, would crush, he would destroy Satan. Satan wants to avoid that. But Satan, you see, he knows if all of that is going to happen, if that showdown is going to occur, it will happen when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom. Let me explain some of this. Satan takes Jesus to an exceedingly high mountain so that all of the kingdoms of the earth will come into view. Of course, there's no mountain in the world high enough to see all of the kingdoms of the world. But by way of a vision, something supernatural, all these kingdoms of the earth are before them. And then Satan says to Jesus, here you go, they're yours. All you have to do is worship me in exchange for them. The problem would be solved. You get what you want, I get what I want. Now, we have to understand that currently all of the kingdoms of the, of the world belong to Satan. They do. And he wants to keep them. It was all handed over to him by Adam. When Adam rebelled against the Lord, whom God had given dominion over the earth, he then surrendered that to Satan. We know this because Paul says that Satan is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He calls him the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world, John 12.31, John 14.30, and John 16.11. John the apostle said that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That's 1 John 5.19. And Daniel chapter 9 through 12 demonstrates the truth of this, and Revelation demonstrates to what degree, how much his, his, his rule has permeated the world. So the earth and everything in it is under Satan's dominion, and that would account for why Jesus didn't object when Satan said, these are all mine to give away. Now the problem is the Father wants Jesus to rule over all the kingdoms of the world. That's the Father's will, and Satan knows that. But he also knows by what means the Father will have Jesus acquire all the kingdoms of the world. He will do it by sword. Jesus will do it by violence. You can read Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. Violence. Violence will be required because Satan will not hand them over peacefully. And so to avoid the trouble, Satan offers them to Jesus in exchange for Jesus' worship. If he does it Satan's way, Jesus can avoid the cross and then nobody has to get hurt. He can still reign over all the earth. All will be peaceful, right? Now, it's my opinion that Satan has a reoccurring nightmare ever since the book of Daniel was written because his doom is prophesied throughout its pages. But there's one particular chapter that I think has been bugging him for centuries. It, it's interesting because it, 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 it looks so much like this last temptation. In Daniel chapter 2, it involves all the kingdoms of the world, a mountain, and a rock that comes down from the mountain and destroys all the kingdoms of the world, and then that rock becomes a global empire. The rock is not Satan, and the global empire is not Satan's. Okay, so Satan now has Jesus, the rock of Daniel 2, on a high mountain, overlooking all the kingdoms of the world, and he's suggesting to Jesus Instead of destroying all these kingdoms of the world, 
as Daniel prophesied, with a massive display of divine justice. How about I just give them to you? Let's skip all of that. Let's avoid all of the justice. You just worship me and you can rule over them. What do you think, Jesus? This is what Jesus thinks. He said, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. He baits Jesus with the kingdoms of the world, tries to justify false worship by giving him the kingdoms. I think you can just hear the father saying, boy." And by the way, I got your sword right here. I'm going to bring you home and then I'm going to send you back with it. Just as John or Revelation chapter 19 says, Jesus says, away with you. Satan, be gone. Deuteronomy 6.13 is very clear. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Jesus had gone through it. Imagine fasting for 40 days, water only, how depleted your body would be, your strength, your stamina. He's in such bad shape that God sends his angels to minister to him after he's passed the test. So apparently I think that Satan is going to have to continue to have his nightmare until Jesus returns to fulfill it. Now I want you to notice something real quick in closing here from Luke's gospel. Luke's account of all of this says that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time, Luke 4.13. He departed until an opportune time. Satan is the ultimate optimist. He will not give up until he finds himself in the lake of fire. The same is true for us. He is exactly as Peter says. Let me read that to you and then we'll pray. Peter says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, I'm just so grateful for your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus' success. That he now stands, Lord, as a perfect representative, as our champion, so that, Lord, that when we're tempted, that we can have success. Help us, as Peter says, to submit ourselves to the mighty hand of God. Help us to be watchful, to be vigilant. And, Lord, I also thank you that as we've looked many times at the Old Testament, there's, the text is filled with your promises. Concerning Jesus' first coming, you have fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Nothing of your word has ever fallen to the ground. And as Peter gives that benediction, all dominion and power, all glory belongs to you forever and ever. The mess that we're in right now will come to an end and you will reign forever. Lord, help us by your spirit to endure until then. Grant us your grace, I pray. And Lord, I just pray for all in our church right now that are sick. Lord, we ask that you just grant mercy to them, that you'd help them to recover quickly. Lord, bring them back to us safely, we pray. Lord, I pray for Michael Stone 
and uh, just in the frail condition that he's in. First, I thank you, Lord, that he trusts you absolutely and um, that he looks forward to being in your presence. But Lord, as a fellowship, we don't want him to go yet. I know his bride doesn't want him to go yet. And we do pray that you would strengthen him and that you'd bring him home. And Lord, for others that are facing illness right now that is very worrisome, um, Lord, I pray that you just strengthen their bodies and that you'd raise them up. Grant them grace, we pray. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we hope to see you uh, the 12th and, uh, and celebrate with you. So Lord bless you. Goodbye.